Good morning. This is the second of two weeks where we are talking about sexuality and the Bible's perspective on sexuality. And we often would say at Grace Church, if you missed last week, then it's worth catching up. And we always mean it. But that just probably never been more the case than on this occasion. These, these two weeks really are two parts that go together. So if you, uh, if you did miss last week, uh, then, then really would encourage you to catch up in a kind of this really the, found, the foundation for what I'm saying this week. Um, but to refresh from, from what I was talking about last week, I talked about how Christian sexuality is not totally separate from everything else that we know about Christianity. And I, I think it can be helpful to think of a Christian understanding of love identity and desire, which are things that many Christians will know quite a lot about, to think of these things as pillars that hold up Christian sexuality. So Christians should be marked by love that is humble and patient and kind. And that certainly should extend to the LGBT plus community and sexual minorities But it is a lie of the culture that says that to love is to agree and endorse any behaviour and perspective. We love by patiently and kindly guiding people to the truth as revealed in God's word. And whilst many today would say that you are who you feel you are inside and who you are In order to find out who you are, you need to work out your own identity for yourself. Christianity says that God is the one who really determines and decides our, our identity. We have human identity as those who uniquely bear the image of God. And Christians have Christian identity as as children of God. That is who we are. So we don't have to carry the weight of something as huge as finding our own identity and our desires are real but that doesn't mean that because we have a desire for something including sexual experiences uh, doesn't necessarily mean that we should act on that desire and also temptation is different from sin our desires don't define us and we shouldn't be made to feel sinful for having desires to do something that God doesn't condone. Now, these are pretty fundamental truths when it comes to Christianity. And when we have a good understanding of these things, I think we're pretty well equipped to think about Christian sexuality. So do, do catch up if you missed it. This morning, with, with, with those pillars in place, we're going to think a bit more about how we might respond as Christians, respond to and, and show love to various groups of people. So how do we, as Bible-believing Christians, respond to and show love to lesbian and gay people and and bisexual people as well? Then, how do we respond to and show love to transgender people, those who experience a kind of dissonance or disconnect between their bodily biological sex and their feeling or experience of their gender? And how do we respond to and show love to intersex people, those for whom there is some biological ambiguity? And with all of those groups, we are talking about responding to real people. So it's not us and them. It's certainly not us versus them. 
And they are people who are both inside and outside the church. These people are in the church and in our church. I certainly, I certainly hope that they are. And then, quite different to, to responding to groups of people, how are we going to look at, how do we respond to those who may or may not be LGBT plus themselves, but who are trying to use much of this thinking and ideology to, to tear down the gender binary, the, the male and female. So activists, often the media, whether it's a Twitter mob, whoever it is. Because our response there as Christians is quite different. Because we're not so much responding to people with real struggles, but, but concepts and ways of thinking that have potentially harmful implications and an impact on many other areas of life. And in all of this, we're remembering the pillars of love, identity and desire. I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 19, uh, where Jesus is, is talking with some Pharisees and the disciples um, in a moment. But just to, to clarify that, this passage is not primarily talking about LGBT plus people and, and these issues of sexuality in that way. This, this passage is really about divorce and marriage. But Jesus does say some things which speak into this discussion and I think are really helpful and can shape our thinking in that way. So Matthew chapter 19 from verse 3. Some Pharisees came to him, that's Jesus, to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, why did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this, this word, the one who can accept this should accept it. Before we go further, kind of answering those, those questions, just a word on singleness and marriage, which is important, I think, for us to understand as we move forward in, in these questions. Because Jesus says and, and implies some interesting things about marriage and singleness here. Some people think in the world that we live in that in order to be happy, you need sex. The vast majority of the people in the world act like that's true, even if they don't really think it. Now, actually, sex is not a physical need. Psychologists, sex therapists generally agree that that's the case. Uh, but people generally know Christians don't think that, right? It's not Christians don't think that. But 
Christians can sometimes be guilty of acting like in order to be happy, maybe you don't need sex, but you do need marriage. And that's, that's an awful way to act. The church can be pretty bad at this sometimes, at giving that impression when it's not at all the case. We want to do better to, to make it clear that that's not the case. The church should be the best place for single people, as well as married people, to, to thrive. We, we really should and must not present marriage as if it is the end goal for Christians, whether gay or straight. Jesus certainly doesn't act like marriage is the end goal, both in what he says and how he acts. So in how he acts in his life, it might seem cliche, but Jesus was the most fulfilled person ever to walk the face of the earth, and he was unmarried. You don't need marriage to be fulfilled, and therefore he was celibate. So the most fulfilled person ever never married and never had sex. And Jesus kind of portrayed it in what he said as well. He comes down in this passage pretty hard. He comes down hard on divorce. And the disciples say in verse 10, well, it's better not to marry then. And Jesus doesn't disagree. He says in uh, verses 11 and 12, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. By when Jesus says, those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, he's almost certainly referring to Christians who are un unmarried and choosing to remain celibate for the sake of righteousness. Jesus acknowledges, and so should we, that there are those who are called to live as single and, and they are therefore called to celibacy. And this is not a lesser calling than marriage. Possibly it's a higher one, as you can see in, in other passages. So marriage is good. It points to the gospel, but it is not the gospel. Rebecca McLaughlin, really helpful on this stuff. She says marriage isn't the goal of human experience. It's not the mountaintop. It's not the destination. It's a signpost. We saw last week sex and marriage. They're just a trailer for the main film. I want to clarify that. You don't have to get married to be fulfilled as a Christian. So that said, how do we respond to and show love to these groups of people? And I've got the same three things really for each one. And it might look slightly differently in the, the way we apply them. But each one, the response, remembering the pillars that we talked about, the response is to love, to listen, and to guide. It, it's, it's, it's simple and it's Christ-like. How do we respond to and show love to gay and lesbian people? We love and we listen and we guide. So our response is to, to love. Sex is not necessary for happiness or fulfillment. Marriage is not necessary for happiness, fulfillment, but love is. And if love can be found anywhere, it, it should be found in the church of Christ. Now that means that we should put homophobia by that I mean the dislike of or the prejudice against lesbian and gay people, we should put that to death. We know love is a, is a pillar and, and, and this doesn't mean that we forget everything else that we know about what love looks like in Christianity. 
Preston Sprinkle, I know he's a, a great name. Um, he's a guy written a lot on this really helpful stuff. He, he says, Jesus' love is neither permissive nor conditional. It expects and enables obedience, but doesn't require obedience as its prerequisite. So helpful. Elsewhere, he says, some people will think you are pro-gay if you stand up for gay people, and that's fine. If people mistake your unconditional love for gay people as an affirmation of homosexual behavior, then don't worry about it. You're in good company. Religious people often thought that Jesus was a sinner because he had many friends who were sinners, yet he kept on befriending sinners. It's a helpful way to think. Our response is to love. And our response is to listen. The problem with talking like I am this morning, really, kind of, this is how we respond to this. This is, it, it kind of presents, it's like a manual. This is what to do when. But, but we've got to remember, we are, we are talking about people with lives and experiences and stories. We, we've got to make sure that we hear people. It's not about telling gay and lesbian people what it's like to be gay, but, but listening to them. We can't love without listening. We, we must do this for, for all people, but certainly, especially for our young people. Young people will not care how much you know until they know how much you care. Gay and lesbian people, we want to listen to you, hear what it's like. There are people in our church who experience same-sex attraction. And I want to strive for an environment where those people don't feel gross or ashamed, but where they can talk about their struggles to fellow members and not just get cold silence and terrified stares in response. And our response is to guide. Loving and listening does not mean agreeing with everything. As with anyone, we want to disciple gay people and lead them towards Jesus. We point them to biblical truth, believing God's word to be good for all of us. Sex is exclusively for marriage. And from the beginning, sexual difference seems necessary for marriage in the biblical understanding of sexuality. Jesus affirms that in, in this passage when he doesn't actually necessarily need to. They ask about divorce and Jesus says in Verse four, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female? He points to Genesis one and two, and he seems to see the beginning, the creation as normative, as the thing to strive after. He says, it has not been so, it was not so from the beginning. That we wanna get back to the beginning as normative is Jesus's perspective. So for those who want to live for Jesus, who are exclusively same-sex attracted, as long as that remains the case, that means an unmarried life of celibacy. Those desires and attractions are real, but they don't need to define you. And just because they are real does not mean that it is good for you to submit to them. And there are many same-sex attracted Christians who are living out this path of single and, and celibate to the, to the huge glory of God. We love gay or same-sex attracted Christians 
by guiding them to this and helping them in this as far as we can. It's not necessarily going to be easy. If you're gay and want to follow Jesus, I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but, but it doesn't mean that it will be awful and unfulfilled and that you can't find love and joy. And there is huge potential to serve God and to glorify him with your life. How do we as the church respond to transgender, trans people? That is those for whom gender dysphoria is a real felt experience. Gender dysphoria, what I mean by that, what that means is a term that describes a sense of unease that a person may have because of a mismatch between their bodily, biological sex and their felt experience of their gender. And many trans people have taken measures to attempt to change their sex to match their felt experience. How do we as the church respond to such people? We love and listen and guide. We love. I don't believe that Christians are called to be culture warriors who don't really care about the actual transgender person. We are called to love people. And, and you know, there, there will be a welcome for transgender people in other communities, whether we are giving it and extending it or not. We must make sure that we are open to loving and supporting people with genuine struggles. God loves them and so must we. And we believe we have life-giving hope and truth, but trans people won't want to hear it if we're not providing a loving and welcoming place to people with real struggles. Which, I mean, that's the only kind of people that exist, right? People with struggles. We respond with love and we respond by listening to their stories and how it feels to be them. Someone said, if you've met one transgender person, you've met one transgender person. Uh, it's, it's a helpful way to understand it. We're dealing again with real people with unique stories. God loves them and so must we. Gender dysphoria is real. People have this real experience. And I can only imagine how hard it must be to experience that. To, to have that as your kind of daily dissonance. The least that I can do is let someone explain it to me rather than telling them that it's fake or telling my perspective on it, but just hearing them on it, explaining what it's like. And we lovingly and patiently guide people. From the beginning, there have been two sexes, two genders. Jesus, again, affirms this by saying that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. The Bible and Christian orthodoxy is clear that gender is not a social construct. It's, it's not a spectrum between man and woman. Gender is binary, male and female, man and woman. And the body, the, the physical, matters in Christianity. In 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20, for example, Paul writes, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? 
You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. A lot of people today have a view which is kind of an ancient or Gnostic and, and very unchristian belief that to say that the physical is, is bad or, or maybe irrelevant at, at best. So however we feel is more important than the physical reality, but that, that, that's not a Christian view. However we feel, the Christian understanding is that we look to the physical reality in creation to help us determine what is true, however we might feel. So our sexed bodies, male and female, play a key role in determining who we are. And that pillar of identity, God determines who we are. And one key way is through the body that he's given us. The theological ethics scholar Ross Hastings says, We are made in God's image as persons who are not completely defined by their sex, but who cannot be defined apart from their embodied sex. And I believe as well, if we're understanding our sex and gender based on our feelings or our kind of understanding what we feel, rather than our bodies, then actually we end up having little else to build from than gender stereotypes. Gender stereotypes are not bad in themselves, they can be helpful, but certainly they can be used in harmful ways. Abigail Favali says uh, in her great book on, on this, if girlness and boyness no longer reside in the body, there is no other ground for these concepts except stereotypes. Now that's concerning. We, we guide people. How do we respond and love? How do we respond to transgender people? We love transgender people by patiently doing what we can to guide them to finding security in letting God define who they are and working, all of that, working out all of that means for them. If you suffer from gender dysphoria, I don't believe that to affirm how you feel about yourself as the, the thing that, to, to be the thing that should determine who you are, I don't think that's the best way to love you. We don't do it in other areas. For example, there are, there are some for whom anorexia is, is a real experience. It's immensely difficult and sad. And we don't love anorexic people by affirming their perceptions and their dissonance between what their body is and what they feel it looks like. We, we patiently and love people with anorexia through their struggles by pointing them to truth and helping them to walk in it as best we can. And I think that's how we patiently and love and respond to transgender people. Again, really this is how we, the church, respond to people. Whether they're a Christian or not, we love them, we, we hear them, we engage with them, and we try and show them Jesus and guide them to giving their lives to him and submitting to his goodwill for their lives in all things. A last people group, how do we respond to intersex people? Intersex is an umbrella term that encompasses a range of conditions that mean there is a degree of ambiguity to someone's biological sex. And the vast majority of those who are often characterised as intersex are actually unambiguously male or female. It's about 0.02% for whom it is ambiguous at birth what sex they are. But those people do exist. And there are, there are others for whom 
There might be biological complications with slight inconsistencies in chromosomes or genitalia. And I think Jesus acknowledges intersex people in verse 12 when he says there are eunuchs who were born that way. Now, sadly, some people can use intersex people to say, therefore, the gender binary is a falsehood. But we see Jesus in these verses is very comfortable in the space of a few sentences affirming both those things, that intersex people exist, some are born eunuchs for whom there are real complications, and he also affirms there are two genders. God made them male and female. So we don't need to panic that there might not be a binary at all, but how do we respond to real people with these real struggles? We love we say, God loves you and so do we. We want to acknowledge you and see you rather than use you as points in an argument. We listen, we want to ask you your story. How can we best serve you and love you and guide? There is a place for you in God's people and in his kingdom. Let's figure out what that looks like for you. I hope and believe that we can help and serve you. We're talking about and responding to and, and, and loving people with all of those things. Always remembering the pillars, not throwing out everything that we know and believe to be true. We respond by loving, listening and guiding people and not treating them like they're an issue to deal with. But for many of us, the main way that we will be interacting with a lot of this will not be through people, but through an ideology, an agenda through activists and the media who are using transgender and intersex people, whether they would describe themselves that way, them, themselves that way or not, they're using that way of thinking to try and tear down the gender binary in wider society with significant and concerning results. Now, it might be, you might have experienced this by being told to wear a rainbow lanyard when you're not comfortable doing it or having children who are being told or taught things as facts that you fundamentally disagree with questions over toilets and women's only spaces questions over whether biological males can compete as women in sport people whether people should be able to have a position in government if you believe in, in things like the male-female binary or in traditional marriage. And it's easy to see specific examples. So in sport, this week, the trans woman, that is a biological male, Austin Killips, competing as a trans woman in a major women's cycling race and winning the race, having taken up cycling just four years ago. In, see it in the media with the prisons. Questions over a convicted racist in the story a few weeks ago who, a, who raped as a man called Adam Graham who then transitioned to a woman called Isla Bryson and wanted to serve the prison sentence in a woman's prison. See it there? We see it on, on our children. So the Tate Britain uh, art gallery, I think at February half term, had drag queen Ada HD come and read stories to children as part of the half-term activities. You might think, I'm not sure, I think this is harmful and a dangerous way of thinking that I don't want to take root in my heart or in my family's lives. How do I respond to that? 
I, I think how we respond to those things, activists and agenda, is quite different to how we are responding to people. One pastor puts it, I think, helpfully, when responding to activists, it's kind of a combination of, he said, robust rebuttal and outright ridicule. I think that's helpful language. And this is how Jesus responds to the Pharisees in this story who are acting kind of like activists, pushing in an ideology. And Jesus says pretty bluntly, haven't you read? And no, they definitely have. Jesus knows they have. He knows, haven't you read? At the beginning, the creator made them. How, haven't you read that? Do you not understand that fundamental reality? Occasionally, robust rebuttal and or ridicule is an appropriate response and often, People have not really thought through their position. So, for one, the, the concept of us deciding who we are based on what we feel, or even just what we want, as it sometimes is, does have some concerning and occasionally really silly implications. For example, I am a six foot, give or take, almost basically, six foot white British 33 year old man. Now, if I told you that I was a four-foot Korean seven-year-old girl, I think the best way for you to love me would not be to affirm that that is indeed who I am, if that's who I, how I feel. If I feel that way, that's fine. But to lovingly and patiently guide me to truth and reality. Here's a clip of, you may have seen, someone interviewing university students that expresses a bit how sometimes ideas can get out of hand. Are you aware of the debate happening in Washington State around um, the ability to access bathrooms, locker rooms, spas based on gender identity and gender expression? I, I think people should be able to have access to the facility. I think uh, bathrooms could and potentially should be gender neutral because there doesn't need to be a classification for differences. I think people definitely should have the ability to go into whichever locker room they want. Uh, I feel like at least public universities should do their best to accommodate for those who do not have a specific uh, gender identity. You know, whether you identify as male or female and whether your sex at birth is matching to that, you should be able to utilize the resources. So if I told you that I was a woman, what would your response be? Good for you. Okay. Like, <laughs> yeah. Nice to meet you. I'll be like, what? <laughs> really? I don't have a problem with it. I'd ask you how you came to that conclusion. If I told you that I was Chinese, what would your response be? I mean, I might be a little surprised, but I'd say, good for you. Like, yeah, be who you are. <laughs> I would maybe think you had some Chinese ancestor. I would ask you how you similarly came to that conclusion and why you came to that conclusion. Um, I would have a lot of questions just because on the outside, I would assume that you're a white man. If I told you that I was seven years old, what would your response be? Um, I wouldn't believe that immediately. Uh, I probably wouldn't believe it, but I mean, I, it wouldn't really bother me that much to go out of my way and tell you no, you're wrong. I'd just be like, oh, okay, he wants to say he's seven years old. If you feel seven at heart, then, <laughs> then so be it. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> so if I wanted to enroll in a first grade class, do you think I should be allowed to? Uh, probably not, I guess. I mean, unless you haven't completed first grade up to this point and for some reason need to do that now. If that's where you feel like mentally you should be, then I feel like 
there are communities that would accept you for that. I would say so long as you're not hindering society and you're not causing harm to other people, I feel like that should be an okay thing. If I told you I'm six feet, five inches, what would you say? That I would question. Why? <laughs> because you're not. <laughs> no, I don't think you're six foot five. If you truly believed you're six five, I don't think it's harmful. I think it's fine if you believe that. It doesn't matter to me if you think you're taller than you are. <laughs> so you'd be willing to tell me I'm wrong? I wouldn't tell you you're wrong. No, but I say that um, I don't think that you are. I feel like that's not my place as like another human to say someone is wrong or to draw lines or boundaries. No, I mean, I wouldn't just go like, oh, you're wrong. You're like, that's wrong to believe in it. Because, I mean, again, it doesn't really bother me what you want to think about your height or anything. So I can be a Chinese woman. You... <laughs> um, sure. But I can't be a six foot five Chinese woman. If you thoroughly debated me or explained why you felt that you were six foot five, uh, I feel like I would be very open to saying that you were six foot five or Chinese or a woman. I'm not showing you that little video to ridicule people, but to show how, that, that, that some people really have not thought through their positions and to, to kind of ridicule the ideas. There are times when it is right to respond to ideas critically and not attacking the people but attacking the ideas and the ideology. So, I don't think biological males should be allowed to compete in women's sports. However they express their gender, however they, whatever, uh, however they express their identity, because I think, I think it's because I think the Bible says, I think our bodies matter. And I think that allowing biological males to compete as women is really bad for women. And it's often women who suffer in, this, in these things. And I also, I don't think biological males should be allowed in women's prisons because I think our bodies matter. And I think that allowing that is bad for women. I, so I do think that as Christians, we should be critical of such ideas and not be afraid to graciously and kindly in the right context, come against these things with robust rebuttal. So I, I don't think drag queens should be allowed to read stories to children because, because I don't think that's good for children or women. I don't. I don't get the interest in drag queens. I think it is ridiculous to think that it is good for our children, good for women, and good for society to allow men who are dressed as sexualized, provocative women to read stories to our children. I think it's appropriate to come against such ideas with outright ridicule. But Hopefully you can see in this that we must think about and respond to things like drag queens doing story time very differently to how we respond to people with same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria. Let me say, if you're a Christian brother or sister, re remember that we are living as exiles in a foreign land. 
don't, don't be surprised when things happen in this world that don't fit our way of thinking or the Bible's way of thinking. When non-Christians don't act like Christians, don't panic. We are in Babylon and we are not Babylonians. We, we're, we're foreigners in, in this world. Our home is, is heaven. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be starting a new preaching series through the book of 1 Peter, talking about this a lot, how we are exiles in this world. In this foreign land, let me encourage you to walk with faith and not fear. Don't panic. Trust God. Walk in integrity and grace. I hope that all of this has been helpful and gracious. Remember the pillars of Christian understanding of love and identity and desire. Uh, They are what these details are built on. Here's some um, resources that I would recommend if you did want to kind of uh, read and study a bit more. Don't necessarily agree with everything that all of these people say, but they're really helpful, uh, helped me. Um, The first one is written by Andrew Bunt, who um, lives, I think, just along the coast in the UK and would uh, call himself a same-sex attracted Christian who's living as a single celibate guy, uh, writing, Finding Your Best Identity. This is super accessible, very easy to read. Um, and a really helpful book about identity. Um, Jackie Hill Perry, who is the the lady we saw in the video last week, and uh, you can get her kind of more detailed story. She's called it Gay Girl, Good God. Um, That's a helpful one to read. It's her story if you want more of her. Abigail Favali, I referenced earlier her book, The Genesis of Gender. Again, she has a fascinating story. She's a Catholic, actually, so I don't agree with everything, but such a helpful and um, well-written book there. A bit more difficult, kind of a bit more advanced reading that one. Carl Truman, um, written this book, Strange New World. This really is quite um, a bit more tricky to read. I'm really big picture trying to think, how do we, how we got to this place, the world that we live in, and gets into some detail there if you want to go particularly deep. Um, and then Preston Sprinkle, who I mentioned earlier, has written a book, one on uh, homosexuality, really, and loving gay and lesbian people, people to be loved, and one on transgender and how to love transgender people called Embodied. Uh, so, so really would recommend. Last one is a, is a website, livingout.org, British website, and so, so detailed, so many things on there. Uh, various blogs and questions if you want to kind of if you have a question they probably got a blog or a podcast on it everyone's got a podcast haven't they um helpful things there if, if you want to know more i'd happily talk to anyone more about any of this if this is real for you you struggle or you're just thinking it all through i want to finish by pointing us by guiding us to jesus if if you find christian sexuality hard to grasp hard to accept, that's okay. Jesus acknowledges that. But, but God really loves you. God really is committed to you and your long-term joy. And he is trustworthy. I, whether you're a Christian, whoever you are, I would want you to know that. God loves you. And, and I'd say, hey, look to the cross to see the lengths that God has gone to show his love for you. He has gone to the cross. He's died on a cross for you. God loves you. He really wants what's best for you. 
whoever you are, you might think, yeah, but can I trust him? He might think that, but I just don't think that he's right. And then I said, well, look to the resurrection. See that he is God. He has defeated death. He knows better than us. And we can trust him. His love and his power are proven on the cross and at the resurrection. They're there on display. He loves you and he, he is trustworthy. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your amazing love for us. I thank you that we can trust you. I do pray, God, that we as the church would be like Jesus. We would represent Jesus well in our love and grace. And I pray that this place, Grace Church, would be a warm and welcoming place to all people where love is on display, where the truth is proclaimed with grace and confidence. Fill us with your spirit and equip us, we pray. Amen.